Production. Recorded live. Fragments of Silicon. Did you ever have one of those dreams where you're flying? Welcome, everyone, to another installment of Fragments of Silicon, your weekly uh, vertical slice of gaming goodness and geek culture. And to answer your question, Galax, I, I think I've had that dream. Yeah. Cool. But anyway, so with me in the studios, as always, is Ogre. Yeah. Uh, Galax. Presence. And Teddy Fan. I think I'm still living. <laughs> well, let's get into it. How are you all doing tonight? Uh, <sighs> could be better. All right. All right. So, kind of, that was awfully simultaneous. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's let's uh okay, ogre. Uh, let's start with your suffering. Uh, I got a cold on. Started like Saturday night and then kind of kicked in on Sunday. And I was like, hey, great, another vacation. <laughs> it's really hampering your Mega Man 3 Let's Play. Uh, not that that needs any help. Seeing how not just an irony last night. Uh, so. We're probably going to be, we'll probably be a little rushed on Monday, but not like we haven't had times like that before. When people get sick, it happens. Nah, I can't help it. Yeah. Uh, Hopefully recording is still better than uh, than last episode. I I rather hope so. But, Man, I'm a little bit behind. It, it definitely calms forward. down a bit. I think that was the worst of it. Yeah. So those for those who haven't seen the video, they Naga had a lot of problems on uh, the Doc Robot Shadow Man stage. Not very fun. No, I, I'm pretty sure objects were thrown after that. Yeah, so they were thrown. Uh, anyway, so aside from all that, what's up with you this week, if anything? Hmm. Not much, just been sick and and it likes to amplify other pains, so of course, uh, yeah, I feel sick, and my back's killing me, so yay, all right, Petty fan, it's time for your ongoing saga. apparently, I still have this kidney stone I've been trying to pass for almost two weeks now, yeah this is like your third report on it. Okay, yeah. so you, you've been drinking water, I assume, so maybe you should try drinking motor oil. Maybe that'll help get things lubricated up. And Yeah, let's not do that. <laughs> Gotta do something to pass that. Yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully it'll pass soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, aside from that, how are things? 
Um, I had to factory reset my phone because the most recent update decided it didn't want to work correctly. Yeah. At least I backed everything up beforehand. <laughs> uh, but yeah, other than that, nothing real interest, really interesting happened. We live, we live such interesting lives. Yes, it's yes, always interesting. <laughs> uh, uh, Galix, what about you? Uh, uh, everything's been going pretty decently, I guess. Um, my birthday's coming up, and, uh, well, the weather's been pretty bipolar, but, you know, not in the way that, I mean, bipolar is an improvement over what we were getting earlier, so. <laughs> Just like rain up in this bitch over here. We could use some rain. It would help melt the rest of the fucking snow. <laughs> I, I think there are morning. other people that need rain more than you, but... That's true. I saw an interesting map recently of uh, the the temperature averages for this year or something, or for last year or whatever it was, and it was like, most of the world, hottest ever. Like, the part of the world that I'm in and, like, one other tiny part, coldest ever. Uh... Yeah. Followed by a little note that says, stop by a bitch. And... Yep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anything else to report? Uh, nothing of significance. Yeah. Uh, let's see. For me, this week, uh, it's my mother's birthday. Like, uh, Any plans for that? Uh, took her to McDonald's today because she's got big plans for the rest of the week. Uh, yeah. Didn't really do much else. Yeah, it's like uh, friends coming in from out of town, and they're going to be doing X, Y, and Z. I really didn't pay attention because it bored me. You know, all I remember is that they're doing a lot of stuff in, a, in the span of, you know, her birthday's uh, tomorrow, and you know they're doing stuff for that. They're doing stuff for the rest of the week up until like Sunday. So, yeah, it was kind of. I kind of had to do something small, you know, got her some, you know, got her gifts and all that stuff. You know, sometimes, sometimes you have to go low key. But other than that, uh, things are pretty copacetic. Now that seems to be the story of our lives outside of uh, illness. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Uh, How's the, how's the, how's the Starship Moonhawk uh, Indiegogo going? About the same. Um, it we still has moved. Oh. Yeah. Uh, it's like, and I think, though, on brighter news, Mac told me that the pay, that the uh, ship in a bottle uh, Patreon thing is going better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll throw links to that in the chat for anybody who wants in on them. Right. Uh, let's see. Uh, that's about it. So, merrily we roll along to the interview portion. This week, we are welcoming Bill Swartz of Mastiff Games. Or Mastiff, as the case may be. Ma- yeah, Mast- Mastiff. Bill? Mastiff. Bill, how you doing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're doing fine. How are you? Outstanding. Absolutely outstanding. Cock locked, ready to rock. And by the way, thank you for having me on this show. Considering all the stuff I did last time I'm here, I was here, you know, it's a miracle you're having me back, but thank you. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. Uh, well, let's get into it. Uh, so, uh, how long have you been working at Mastiff Games? We see. That's a really good question. I have to do some quick math. It's about 14 years now. Ah. Just a little shy of 14 years. 
so have you been there since the beginning? I have. I was. So what is your, uh, like, official position at Mastiff? I am CEO and head wolf. <laughs> uh, and, uh, well, where did the idea for Mastiff Games come from? Like, why did you want to create this company, and what does it do? Good question. Um, I mean, there's a real answer and a flip answer, but Mastiff is really kind of sort of um, a spin-out of Activision Japan. I ran Activision Japan for about 12 years, um, and by the way, I loved it. Activision, every single other American company or foreign video game company, for that matter, went into Japan and got blown up. Activision Japan um, survived and prospered, and I'm incredibly proud of that. But, you know, you can only spend so much of your life in Japan. It was time to come home. Um, and during the 12 years I was in Japan, I should backtrack a second and say, when I joined Activision, there were four other people, um, literally. There was this old maintenance van, and all of us could fit in that van. Um, anyway, so I was at Activision Japan for about 12 years. Um, it was definitely time to come home. And, you know, a lot happens to a company like Activision in 12 years, you know. Um, for example, you go from four employees to, at the time, there are probably six or seven hundred plus all the contractors, you know, a whole new bunch of people come in and the company moves from Northern California, which I love, to Southern California. So I thought long and hard about it, decided, you know, all good things must come to an end. So I left Activision. Um, I love video games and frankly, I love the video game business as much as I love video games. Um, was under non-compete for a while, non-compete expired. Then I found a couple of friends. One thing we all had in common is we love dogs, which I still do. Um, and we wanted to start a company and thought about it and decided I wanted a name that would be a proper noun. So you could have a logo that was a name. You couldn't have love or acme or something. Uh, Mastiffs are big, friendly fellows that grow fast. You know, and bam, two weeks later we had an LLC, and the rest is history. Mm. Indeed. Uh, going back to your Activision Japan days, uh, what, did you help games get localized over there? Did you uh, look for games to be localized over here? We did a bunch of things. Um, and, the, and the full answer is probably you know a, a two-hour deal. <laughs> but essentially, I don't know how much you guys know about the history of Activision. But I know, you know it's a deal. Okay. Well, yeah, of course, you're game guys. So you, so you probably know that the Activision now is really depending on how you count the third incarnation of Activision. There was Activision, the incredibly successful company, fastest growing company in America what, two, for two, two years contiguously. Um, and then that sort of fell apart with the Atari. That just went boom. Then it was taken over by a group of people who weren't terribly S-M-A-R-T, who kind of drove it into the ground and changed the name from Activision to Mediagenic. Yep. Um, they're the same people who ruined Infocom. I have yeah, well, exactly. Infocom was, well, yeah, Infocom was one of their brand names. And in fact, when I joined Activision, which was just before the third incarnation, I actually returned on the remake of Return to Zork, believe it or not. Um, but anyway, so then the new people took it over, uh, a group I was part of, and that's Bobby Kodak, who's still around, um, one of the smartest people I know. Brian Kelly, who's sort of the shadow brains of Activision, a handful of other people. 
and um, did a major had a major what they called a company outing. Um, and a company outing means you're out and you're out and you're out and you and your 23 years are out. And that's how we went from at the time it was 200 people to four, maybe it was five overnight. So this gets us to I don't know. This was 1980. 1990, I think. This was 1990. Um, so, and Activision went into what was called the pre-PAC Chapter 11 because it had all these debts. It had just lost a huge lawsuit to Phillips, of all people. Um, this is, you know, obviously a long time ago, 20 to 25 years. Anyway, um, and had no money. So at that point, Activision, early, early on, was just doing licensing deals to raise cash. We, I took Activision Intellectual Properties, um, and sold them in Japan. And then as we got a little bit more money, I began buying Japanese content to sell in the U.S. And then from there, we started publishing in Japan ourselves, which we did briefly. It was kind of a distraction. We went back to licensing. And then after that, we went into a process of both licensing existing content in Japan um, and making content, and then sort of a hybrid where we'd find games in Japan. We would then license the rights, we then improve them and bring them out worldwide. Uh, one of the big games we did, um, probably my career highlight, was a game called Tenchu Stealth Assassins. Mm, I, I, I think I still have a copy of that lying around somewhere. Awesome. Live by honor, kill by stealth. And if you find the dialogue really, really annoying, well, you can blame me personally. Um, but so that, that was Activision, sort of a potpourri of stuff. Right. Uh, just one more question. Did you ever? Did you have anything uh, to do with a game called The Guardian's Crusade? Yes, that was another one of my titles. Um, however, Tenchu, full disclosure, Tenchu was a game we significantly modified. That was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. Guardian's Crusade, which I did not name. That was named by another gentleman. Um, this a game we just picked up, but yes, I, I, I was sort of supervising producer on that. I was the business guy on that one. Um, I did a little bit of the translation for that. Yes, I remember Guardians Crusade very well. Yeah, I have to bring this up because yeah, our friend Naka is let's playing that currently, and uh, oh wow, yeah, looking looking into that some, it looks like uh, there was another title that wanted to use but was taken by uh, something else, uh, the Guardian Guardian Legend, and from what I've seen, it looks like the, uh, it was a pretty decent adaptation, except for you had to cut out one of the uh, living dolls or something because it had a Russian roulette theme. In Guardians Crusade? Apparently so. That, that's according to Wikipedia. Huh. I mean, this was a long time ago, but I have absolutely no memory of having done that at all. Russian roulette theme? Hmm. I don't know. I, I need to check that out. I'm deeply suspicious. Yeah. Well, uh, Guardians Crusade Activision, right? Yeah. Well, it, it, that was the title. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, so the ultimate point here is uh, did uh, your... Did your years at Activision Japan help you uh, at Mastiff, and in what ways? God. That's such a deep question. I mean, it, it's kind of, and I, I'm not trying to be sarcastic when I say it was such an incredibly formative experience. Yeah, I mean, it shaped me. You do anything for 12 years, especially something as intense as that, and it'll affect you. But yeah, I mean... It was a great time in my life. It was also a great education. And, you know, to some extent, it's the same business. In fact, it's very much the same business. Um, Massive has gone through a bunch of incarnations. You know, when we first started, we were mostly picking up content in Japan. 
although we did a few other things. We had a Top Gun license for years, for example. It was mostly for Japanese content. Um, you know, and we went from there to doing a lot of hunting and fishing. And then we went from there to doing hunting and fishing with what I call budget FPS thrown in. And now we're going a little bit back to our roots. But yeah, absolutely. It's where I learned two-thirds of the business. Hmm. Makes sense. And uh, what have been some of your most successful titles to date? You mean at Mastiff or career-wise? Uh, both. Well, I think career-wise, there's absolutely no doubt Tenchu. I mean, sure. in terms of numbers sold, in terms of capturing so that lightning in a bottle, Tenchu is way, way, way up there. In terms of, at least in terms of units and dollars, both, that was a tremendously successful game and a tremendously good game. And frankly, it still to this day bothers me that the franchise never, for a lot of reasons, was allowed to develop the way it should have. You know, Tenchu 2 was okay, and then rights were sold, and it kind of petered out. And if there was ever a series that needed to be loved and nurtured and turned into something extraordinary, it was Tenchu. And that, that's kind of a regret, but unfortunately, that's sort of out of my hands. Um, Another sort of under-the-radar success, I'm jumping around, and we've had Massive was a game called Zero Drive, which is a great story about how a game you never, ever expect can just take off. Do you have time for a little side trip? We do. All right. Um, so we're at Mastiff. We have this really great idea. We're going to do an FPS on DS because that's such a great idea, right? Um, and so we get hooked up with Renegade Kid, and we do Moon. And, yeah, Moon was, for us, an expensive product. Um, it was slightly artsy, and we were really focused on it. And we also had a couple of games that wound up just before we did Moon. And so we started on Moon, and it's like, you know what? Um, we can't be all Moon all the time. You know, this is great, but we need another project. This is just not quite enough. Um, so we looked around, and... I noticed that all of the hunting games out there really were like, and I'm, I'm a Mac person, I'm not a Windows person, so bear with me, Windows 98, Windows 2000, whatever you want to call it, you know, feature-rich, robust, because they've been iterated and iterated and iterated and iterated so many times, yeah. but clunky, hard to use, unfriendly, ugly, you know, just kind of a mess, designed by committee. Um, and it struck me that that was an opportunity because hunting games are kind of an under-the-radar big field. So um, we created this game called Deer Drive, which is the simplest game on Earth. It's basically space invaders with deer. The deer come at you and you shoot them. And that's pretty much it. Um, I mean, in all modesty, we took the time to make it fun and to play balance it and make sure the camera worked and do all the basic stuff. But it was a simple, 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 simple game. And so we finished it, put it in a box, went out and tried to sell it. I went to Walmart. It's like, you know, kid, get out of here. You know, um, went to GameStop and they're like, you know what? Um, I got to wash my hair. I, I don't have time to meet with you. Talk to you later. You know, nobody, nobody, nobody wanted it. Um, but for some reason, I don't know if it was a clerical error or what, Best Buy took it in. Best Buy took it in, and we shipped it. And, you know, two weeks later, we get our sell-through report. And in the retail business of games, 
physical goods, not the downloadable stuff. Your sell-through is your life, and you know, depending on how well it's selling through, which means how fast people are taking it off the stock, off the shelf. You know, what happens to the game is determined. So we got the first sell-through report, and it was insane. They only took in like 500 units, and like 350 or 400 were gone, and that never happens. That can't happen for anything other than a big release. And it's like, okay, it's a clerical error. This is actually not one week of sell-through. Somehow it's three weeks, whatever. And then, you know, got another report and a reorder. And long story short, it went on to sell just about a million units. I might be one of the few people who's not surprised that that happened because, well, the DS and the Wii and all that, those systems were notable for games of that nature. Maybe not critically acclaimed, but they sold a lot. And it was a fun game. I mean, it just was one of these perfect moments of finding a need because people like hunting games. Um, all the hunting games had, you know, really high barriers to entry. There's too complicated, too hard to play, too expensive. You know, and we came out with um, something that wasn't. It was just fun. But it was, you know, respectful to the player. There was also some trashy games released on the Wii, for example, kind of stuff you looked at and go, are, are you kidding? Would you personally play this yourself? And we didn't do that. We did take the time to make sure it was a quality product. So that was great, um, which was good because Moon kind of cratered, no pun intended. But um, that was a really good surprise. And we had a bunch of others. Um, uh, I, I do want to ask about a couple games here. Uh, Gun sure. Overdose. Oh, that's an awesome game. Yes, that was dumb. Can I tell you the dumbest thing I've ever, ever, ever done in my life? Sure. It's a long list, but I so underpriced Gungrave Overdose. If I could do it again, instead of starting out and saying, you know what, it's a wonderful game, everyone should play it, 1999, um, which is why I did, I should have said, you know what, this is Gungrave Overdose put in a really beautiful leather and wood box with brass and say $99 and then bring out the discount version $49 later. But never mind. I love that game. I love that game. Uh, <laughs> granted, opinion might be a bit mixed among the crew, but it seemed to be a fairly de uh, good game from what I saw. Hey, I like it. <laughs> Bullshit! I'm sorry. Excuse me. I'm getting a bit of a cold. No, no, no. The person who doesn't like it isn't here. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, but well, it's less that he likes it; it's more the difficulty kind of spiked a little hard. It does. It that, that's that's absolutely fair. But even when it spiked, it was playable. So anyway, go on and tell me how you loved the game. <laughs> oh. Uh, let's see. Boonji uh, Kugashira was in it, so that's like an A plus for me right off the bat. Bam. Oh. Uh, uh, also, Major League Eating the Game. Yes! Okay, th this game is always... That sure is a thing to make a game out of. It was. And I, I... Sorry. Major League Eating the Game is just an absolutely... Was it was a great experiment. I mean, here's the deal with Major League Eating... You want, well, you want me to give you the quick deal with Major League Eating the Game? Or do you want to ask your question first, and then I'll ignore it and answer the question I wish you asked? Uh, you go with your version. Okay. Um, there were a couple reasons we did it. One reason was purely as an experiment in game design. Um, you know, obviously the challenge is how the hell do you make an eating game? And the flip side of that is at the time we were doing it, WiiWare was just coming out. Um, obviously we'd expected it to be a little bit bigger than it was. And people still hadn't really gotten the Wii figured out. 
And you know, we thought it would be really, really cool to find a way to use a Wii controller in a way no one had done before, which is what we did with that kind of rhythm chewing thing. And I will also say that just in terms of fun people to be around, interesting, interested, more serious than you'd expect, but also more goofy than you'd expect, um, the guys at Major League Eating, the, the organization, and the professional eaters are just fantastic. They are wonderful people. You know, what was it now? Six, seven years later, they're still my friends. Um, from a personal experience and from a experimental perspective, I think that's probably my favorite project ever. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. I mean, I, I remember it getting kind of savage in the reviews. It was mixed. I mean, there were two camps of people. Uh, there were, if you, and you can go back and if you look, there were some people like, wow, this is really funny. This is really clever. This is kind of creative. And no one's ever done this before. Wow, I'll check it out. And then there were a lot of people who never, I would say, of the, ne- of the negative reviews, fully three-fourths would never bother to review the game. It all started and ended with, this is gross, this is disgusting, this is repulsive. Oh, my God, you can vomit in this game. Oh, my God, stomach gas is a weapon in this game. You know, oh, my God, you know, you're eating food. You're, you're not valuing your food. Those were the people that mostly hated the game. I, I will take a thought-out gameplay criticism any day. I've ignored most of the attacks in that game because that's not what they were. Fair enough. Yeah, that's kind of what I got from reading a lot of the reviews. It's like they hated it because it was like majorly eating the game. Yeah. I wasn't really prepared, by the way, for the amount of hate I would get. I thought it was cool and funny and kind of weird. And, you know, if you can't have fun with video games, why bother? And it's like, nope, nope. It's got to be officially cool Japanese puzzle or rock'em sock'em. This is just too weird. It's like, okay, well, then you don't have to play it. True enough. Uh, anyway, so let's get into Guramin. Uh, all right. First of all, what exactly does Guramin mean? Guramin is really um, a clever and interesting coincidence kind of word. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's kind of a double or triple pun. Um, in Japanese, um, the word for plush animal, like teddy bear, Mm-hmm. is Nui Gurumi. Um, and there was a fashion trend in Japan in, I don't know exactly when it was, this sort of early, mid-90s, um, when people would go around wearing these, wearing animal costumes, think sort of Teletubby-type things, and tigers and squirrels, whatever, full, big, bulky costumes in public, you know, as a funny fashion statement. Um, one of the funny things about Japanese is you, there, there's a suffix that's added to the end of words. Hang with me. This is going somewhere. Min, um, which means group or tribe or association. Um, so koku is country. Koku min means the people of that country. Um, min zoku. Zoku is group. Min in that case means members of, like a race or whatever. So um, what that means is it was very easy for the press and media, whatever, to take the people that um, liked walking around in these stupid costumes and by adding an n sound to the end of the word, turn it into nui gurumin. And that's kind of funny because you've then taken the word for, you know, stuffed animals 
and twisted it with just one teeny little change to mean the tribe of people that wear stuffed animals. Okay, so put a pin in that. Now the next thing is, um, in Japanese, guru-guru mm -hmm. is to go round and round in circles, to rotate. And as you guys know, the protagonist, Perrin, uses a grill in this. And since all of the animals are really, really cute kind of stuffed animals, what they did was just chop up, chop off the first syllable of the word, call it gurumin, and then you, so you have most of the word that refers to the people wearing around, run, wandering around wearing these, you know, animal costumes, and you have something that also sounds like a turntable or a drill going round and round and round. You can see why we didn't try to translate that into English and just left it as good to mean. No, uh, that's about... Dude, I think, I think there would have been a huge market for spinning adorable stuffed animal people. <laughs> Bam! I blew it again! <laughs> oh. <laughs> that... Where were you when I needed you six months ago? Huh? 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 Oh, uh, uh, yeah. I, I'm like, I kind of figured it was something like that because the Japanese love their puns and double meanings. Yeah, exactly. And this one just happened to work out. Yeah. And, and so what, what attracted you to this game uh, in the beginning? Free food. No. Um... I mean, it's Nihon the Falcon. Um, it's a fun RPG. There's really sort of nothing beyond that, except if there's a really fun RPG. You know, if I, if I was going to add something to it or get a little marketing-y on you, I would say that it was, it's the kind of game that I think Mastiff is pretty well positioned to do a good job with because, in all modesty, I think we do really good localizations and we are willing to spend money on voice talent and it's had a lot of voices in it. Yeah. But really, it's just a great game. It's the kind of game that, you know, you'd want to play. Uh, I've put about 20 hours into it, and it's a very solid game. It's got its issues, but, you know, that, that seems to be related to kind of the age of the game or something like that. Uh, you know, it's like, uh, like one of the questions I have is, will we see, uh, can I, will I be able to use the right uh, analog trigger for my gamepad in this game? That's a really good question. I mean, as you've noted, we, we try to, we've been listening to Steam feedback. We're really trying to do that. We added WASD. We are aware there's a lot of demand for that. I don't want to sit here and say yes, absolutely, because if something happens and we can't deliver it, I'll feel bad. But if I had to guess, I'd say there's about a 98% chance that yes, you will. And we're actively working on it right now. I can tell you that. We are actively working on it right now. This is good because this is, about, this is one of my principal complaints about the game. The camera is, you know, is done by the shoulder buttons right now, and so it can be very hard to see what you're attacking at some point. Yeah, I get that. I mean, I'll tell you, by the way, and again, this doesn't excuse it, just explaining it. We really worked on the camera, and the, there are a lot of, we, we have not, we will not touch gameplay. The gameplay is exactly what was in the Nihon Falcon game as it was. Gameplay is untouched. I want to make that extremely clear. Um, we haven't censored, we haven't altered, we haven't done anything. But um, one of the things we did do was improve the camera, um, which in the original you know, Japanese PC game had a lot of issues. And frankly, we spent so much time on that that 
you know, we almost forgot about manual control, um, and that was obviously a mistake, but we only have so many development resources. But we understand that there's a lot of interest in addressing that, and we are really, really trying. All right, and uh, something for clarification for, uh, for purposes. This is the original game, yes, and it's not a port from the PSP. No, it is not a port from the PSP. It is a a localized version of the original PC game, um, not the PC, not the PSP port. Right, because I've seen a lot of that in uh, the reviews and such of this game. They think this is the port, and the PSP game was the original. When it's actually the other way around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because uh, once upon a time, Nihon Telecom was principally a PC developer. You know, they didn't move to the PSP until much later. Uh, this game is uh, is a fair amount uh, in age, I believe. Yeah, I came out originally, I, I don't have it in front of me, 2003 maybe, 2004. Right. So were you ever concerned about the age of the game uh, or the protagonist being rejected by Western audiences? You know, be, that, well, I mean, those, I think those are separate questions, right? Uh, yes, yes. Um, age of the game, yes and no. I mean, frankly, you know, we're selling it for nine ninety nine, which is a ridiculously low price. Um, and the age and the age of the game is one of the reasons why. Although, frankly, I think, you know. Could have been fourteen ninety nine just as well. Um, I think at nine ninety nine is a great bargain, which is cool. You know, we want people to play these games. We love these games, and I'd much rather have ten people play them and love them than have seven people play them and love them. Even if I make a little bit more money selling them to seven people at a higher price. Um, as for the protagonist being rejected, you know, go back to Major League Eating. You know, there are a lot of people that had a big problem with that game. Um, and that's too bad, but it was what it was, and we're proud of it, and we're glad we did it, and there's some people who really enjoyed it. You know, by the same token, Perrin is who she is. I think she's a great character in a lot of different ways. I think she's strong. I think she's funny. Um, I think, although I'm not a great believer that characters and novels and games really influence behavior, but if you want to believe they do, I think she's a good role model for girls. Um, if people choose to dislike her, that's her. That's their prerogative. But it's nothing I'm particularly concerned about. All right. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the localization process. So you know, especially the voice acting. What did you do for this game? Um. When you say what, what did I do personally, or how does the process work? Uh, how does the process work? It's sort of multifaceted. So um, obviously, we got the game. You know, first thing we did was we made sure we had a complete script. And I believe we ended up extracting the sound files and manually copying the script. I don't think there was the original script available, but I'm not positive of that. Um, then, you know, we contacted a couple people we collaborate a lot with, one of them being the producer Chris Zimmerman, and came up with a short list of, I'm going to guess, if there are probably if there are 15 characters in the game, which sort of mean 10 actors roughly, for those 10 actors, we came up with a short list of 20, 25 um, people who we thought would be good. We asked them to audition. Um, we listened to them, and then we made our picks. And you know, and, on, and our second pick, in case anyone wasn't available, then um, while this is happening, obviously we're crunching on the translation. 
Um, translation, of course, is always a sort of a game of balancing things because languages are different. Um, you know, it's not copy typing in a foreign language. Even the best translation requires moving stuff around. The punchline goes in front, it goes in back. This has a reference that doesn't make sense, so you change it to that. That isn't quite a smooth transition. Um, you know, all those little things. So we did it, we, but, so we spent the time, and that's all it is. It's like writing. It's an iterative process to do a really good translation, true to the original, both in content and in sense, yet natural in English. Um, once we had what we thought was a really good translation, we did a table reading, um, which I used to call a script party before I learned in Hollywood as a table reading. But that's where you gather together, you know, as many people as you have major parts, and you sit there and you read the script you wrote. Um, and then you just, and if it, where it works, it's great. And where it doesn't work, you know, you change it a little bit. You know, will she really say that? Does it flow correctly? Whatever. Also, by the way, the table reading is the only time you're going to be having all the characters doing their dialogues in the same room. So character A says hi, character B says hello. A and B are actually physically there. Um, when you get into the studio, the way it works, and it's done this way for all projects, is an actor records all of his or her dialogue in one sitting and then is edited later, which means if you have two people talking in the game, they're actually not in the same room. Um, you know, they're probably done on different days. And then the dialogue is made by editing the two sets of lines together, uh, which makes it really important that the table reading be done so that you know that when the dialogues are interwoven, they'll actually work. And it's sort of one of those no battle plan survives. Um, contact with the enemy. And by the way, if you if you go to the behind-the-scenes clip of Gudeman, there's one, I believe, on the Steam store page. And also, if you go to Gudeman.rocks, Gudeman.rocks, G-U-R-U-M-I-N.rocks, mm-hmm. um, you'll see the behind-the-scenes clip there, too. And that's actually in the studio, and you can see what it looks like while we're recording. So you record all your lines. You usually get two or three takes. Um, you choose the one you like best, and you top and tail it, which is where you cut off all the sounds before and after the actor speaking. Then you layer over any sound effects, and then bam, you have audio chocolate. Indeed, like I've really been impressed with the localization and the voice work and everything. Now, uh, on that note, uh, because I have been asked about this, uh, are there any plans to offer a bilingual track? That is to say, uh, any plans to have the Japanese track in there at some point? Yes and no. When you say plans, I can't say there are plans. There's an incredible desire. Um, It's something I really, really want to do. I'm probably dating myself um, in terms of age, but is it okay if I quote Grandmaster Flash for a second? Sure. It's all about money and a damn thing funny. Hmm. Um. You know, we'd love, love, love to do it. Unfortunately, if we reuse the Japanese tracks, we owe the voice actors association um, a payment, as a lot of people have summarized correctly in various discussion threads. And unfortunately, margins are so thin, I can't do it right now. If we sell a good number, if we see some serious support, um, and sales right now are okay, they're okay, they're not great, they're okay. But if we see some sales, serious support, we'll absolutely do it. Um, but we need to see some income from this first. 
Right. And well, what made you want to localize uh, the PC version of Gurman uh, like now? Um, mostly because um, there was an opportunity. You know, we really wanted to put it out on PC. That's something we've really been wanting to do. Um, we didn't think we could put it out in a box, full price. Right. And um, we certainly weren't going to, you know, drop it on a CD and put it on a rack somewhere. Um, but since Steam and Desura and um, became ubiquitous, you know, we finally had a way of doing it, so we did it. And uh, I'll note that games of this nature are becoming much more commonplace. Like, if, you know, just in Nihon Falcom terms, Xseed is uh, doing a lot of uh, business with East. Yeah, I know. Yeah, but, uh, you know, it, it's always good to see games like this uh, come out. You know, they, they make for a nice variety. Yeah. Uh, and I'd like to think that the price point makes it really accessible. Yeah. And uh, some more technical questions uh, I've been asked. Uh, is the game running at 60 FPS or 30 FPS, and is it locked to that frame rate? Okay. Here's the deal. The game is not locked to any frame rate. I've seen it running at 500 FPS. Here's where the confusion comes from. Okay. Um, the move, the cut scenes, which we haven't touched. And you know, if we were to touch them, it would mean redrawing them. I don't think anyone wants us getting involved in redrawing Nihon Falcon um, right. cutscenes. Aren't even really 30 frames. I think they're probably 24 frames a second. So the cutscenes are not 30 frames. Um, also, some of the 2D animations, which are the, some of the expressions put on people's faces, those 2D things, and the rhythm bar at the top, those are also being done at 30 frames a second. But core gameplay itself, the game itself, is not locked. It'll be 60 most of the time. You've got faster equipment. It can go faster. Okay. Yeah, because I, I, I've, seen a lot of, I've seen a fair amount of people say that uh, this is running at 30. Yeah, and again, it's funny, too, because I read all those threads. I mean, I am reading them, at least most of them. And I can see the sort of debate back and forth. It's like, no, dude, it says it's 60, and it looks like 60. It's like, no, you're wrong. It's 30. And it's like, no, one of you guys is looking at the game, and one of you decided to evaluate the game looking at a cutscene. And uh, did you add widescreen support to this game, and is the maximum resolution of this game uh, 1080p? Um, yes and yes. Okay, uh, do we know then? Uh, well, did you have to do anything special to get widescreen support in there? Not really. And I mean, um, when you say widescreen, it does not go. I should have I should have qualified that a little bit. Um, but the short answer is no. I mean, it will be stretched out, but no. Okay. Uh, and let me see. Uh, is there any shell shading going on in this game? There's no. No. I think that it looks kind of shell shaded to me. Doesn't it? Um, but that's just that's not real shell shading. As, um, that's just sort of good animation. We there it is. There is a shadow system. It's not really shell shading. Cell shading. Mm -hmm. uh, good because uh, I was wondering if it was just me. <laughs> but um, anyway, so can you share some details of your Steam Greenlight campaign? <sighs> um, sure. Could you be a little more specific though? 
Well, uh, how did the whole thing uh, go? Uh, you know, where did the idea come from, and you know, was the response uh, favorable and all that stuff? It, it was it was a really interesting experience. Um, you know, obviously we were required to go through green light. Um, and I and and little footnote, um, Steam has revised its green light procedures recently, and we went in just as it was transitioning. Um, so it was a long process. It took us more than six months to get approval. Um, we got a very positive response. Uh, we have, I believe, I don't have it in front of me, 90,000 yeses um, and 75% yes. And the average is like 20,000 of approved games, like 20,000 yeses and you know 45% yes. So from a statistics point of view, we just blew it away. Um, you know, one thing you might be getting to is our free game giveaway. Vote first on Steam. We'll give you a free game. Right. Um, we, I did see some blowback. A lot of people like that is so shady. How dare these guys give their games away? Um, and I don't know what to say. I was actually really taken aback by that. As far as I'm concerned, do you want to give me a free game? I'll take it. Um, it was also explicitly allowed. Steam has, since we've done that, finally recently clarified a little bit um, and kind of said they would prefer people not do that. But at the point we started the campaign, it was explicitly allowed. Um, and you know, frankly, we're a new enough maker to Steam. I mean, we're not a PC maker. We've done nothing but council for 13, 14 years. And because of the transition team, things were moving slowly enough that we wanted to get the extra support. And frankly, because we believe in the title so much, um, and we're sure that people who play it will enjoy it, you know, we'd much, much rather see a few people who didn't pay for it get it than um, mm-hmm. than not. Because I believe, you know, they'll they'll tell their friends, their friends will see them playing it, and more people will experience it. You know, in terms of little footnotes, um, and more sort of, you know, sometimes you just can't win against the Internet. Um, When we did the support us and get a free game code campaign, we were pretty clear. We said on the Greenlight page, vote for us, then go over, join the Steam group, and tell us there that you voted for us, and you'll be eligible for a free key. Um, now, when you go to the Steam Green Group, excuse me, the um, the group itself, it just says please sign up here. It doesn't explicitly say vote for us. Tell us you voted for us. Um, mm-hmm. But it did explicitly say that on the green light page where people theoretically came from. So lo and behold, about two weeks before the end of two weeks before release. Um, we started getting all of these complaints. Well, you guys never said that I had to tell you we were voting for you. You only said to sign up. And it's like, well, that's actually not true. It's pretty explicit. You know, here's the link to the green light page. Um, but there's still a lot of unhappiness. And you know, and the fact is, we, and by we I mean me, kind of blew it. Um, we probably really should have said it there too, although it was pretty clear on the green light page. So we decided, you know what? Um, we're going to give free keys to anyone who's even joined this group, you know, mm-hmm. up to what was it? You know, sort of three weeks before release, which means as a practical matter, a ton of people, a ton of people, you know, who didn't who'd never even heard of the game previously, did not support us in Greenlight, could not have supported us in Greenlight, ended up getting free keys. Um, and then there are a few people who joined the group and then left it. 
and we're no longer considered eligible because if you leave the group, then you're not in our group membership database and you, know, you don't come up for a free key. Um, and some of those people were bitter. Um, and we've tried. We've been a little overwhelmed. But if someone sends a picture of the game in their library, we'll try to send them a free key. Um, although I think we're going to be less inclined to do that as time goes on. Um, it was much more, so I think, pressing right on release because then you know there are people that really wanted to play the game and didn't have time to Photoshop it up. Um, so I don't know, but that's the right answer. It's a mixed bag. Got through green light. Got a lot of people looking at the game, which is good. You know, what started out as was supposed to be a gesture of generosity with the free keys turned into a mixed success. I think some people are very happy with it and said thank you. Um, some people just sat there and said, well, I want one. And that was a little disheartening. Um, and you know, if we do it again, I don't know if we do it the same way, but I have no regrets about the way we did it. All right, so we're getting low on time, so just a couple more questions here. Sure. Someone hang up? I don't think so. I don't think so. Mm, might have been me. Oh, weird. Anyway, uh, <laughs> anyway, so is there any differences between the PSP and the PC version? There's a ton of differences. Mostly not that major, but there's a good number. Um, you know, the biggest one gameplay-wise is the display of um, the rhythm bar at the top. That's the biggest single difference. And there's a, there's a few extra little surprises in the PC version. You know, the PC version is frankly more robust, um, mostly because it could be bigger. There's more screen real estate. And I think people are feeling a little freer when they did it. But they're similar. They're 80, 90, 90% the same, 95% the same. Mm -hmm. And has the game been doing well since its release? I think we've done pretty well. Um, I'm incredibly delighted with the reviews we've gotten. Sales has clicked along okay. Um, I certainly could use your support. But yeah, we're pretty happy with it. Well, I mean, that, uh, that's why we're interviewing you. For which I'm incredibly grateful, by the way. In all seriousness, thank you very much for having me on your show. I hugely appreciate it. Oh, no problem. We, we always, in turn, appreciate it when guests have a good time on our program. Yeah. Uh, and uh, finally, uh, is there anything you want to talk about future-wise at this point, you know, in terms of, like, your next project? Um, you know what? Thank you for the invitation. I really appreciate it, and I think I'm going to pass. Um, if you'll be so kind, just let me come back on the show when I'm ready to discuss what we got next. And it's kind of interesting. <laughs> that is no problem. That is no problem. Yeah. Excellent. All right. All right. So the game is Gurumin. It is currently on Steam and GOG. If you want a DRM free version for $10, is it on sale right now? Sale just ended yesterday. I'm sorry. Yeah. Right. But uh, it'll probably be on sale again at some point in the future. Uh, anyway, uh, go pick it up now. It's a pretty fantastic action RPG. Uh, you know, you, uh, especially given the audience of this show, you probably won't be disappointed. Also, and I don't think we said this, it's adorable. <laughs> uh, it is. It, it really is one of the most adorable games I've played. And it, does, it also doesn't go too far in the direction of cutesy. You know, uh, honestly, I find those things, kinda, it's a balance. Too far in the cute zone in your your cavities. I like to think of it as a gold brick wrapped in velvet that can still hit you pretty hard. Mm. That's a good analogy. 
Anyway, uh, Bill, thank you for your time. You know, thank you very much. Uh, hopefully, we'll have you on again uh, sometime in the future. You know, like, and uh, Petty Fan, play us out. <laughs> yep. All right, welcome to the topic of discussion. So this week we're talking about the Mother series, or uh, Earthbound, if you're so inclined. Oh right, we have transition music. I forgot since we have had so since we had so many full episode interviews lately. But we're back to regular format. So. Yep. All right, uh, Gallus, why don't you get us started on this? Well, Earthbound is the one I knew about first, and. Uh, it certainly was an interesting ad campaign they had on that game, that game, but uh, it didn't put me off. I was really had a lot of fun with it the one time when I was a kid that I managed to rent it. Well, uh, uh, Sorry, that probably wasn't as helpful as you were hoping for. Well, it's like obviously the uh, you know the game Americans are going to be most familiar with is Earthbound because that's the only one we ever got. You know, unfortunately. Like, Earthbound, a pretty huge bomb for Nintendo. And well, and by the time they did that, it was too late to do... I mean, Earthbound Zero, they did localize, basically. Yeah. But they never released it because it was too late in the NES life cycle. Yeah. Uh, and, and then Earthbound 3 after after Earthbound did not do as well as they wanted. And yeah. also, Earthbound, or Mother 3, took forever to be produced. Right. Well, Sorry, I'm terribly unorganized about this. Well, it's also because the, the the original... Okay, back in the NES days, another thing that worked against Mother was Dragon Warrior and Final Fantasy. So Nintendo took a chance and localized, you know, what would become two of the biggest RPG franchises of all time. But their first incarnations did not sell all that well. Uh, Dragon Warrior, they had to give that away free Nintendo power to get rid of all their inventory. And Final Fantasy, despite the huge push it got in uh, Nintendo Power. Like, seriously, there was, like, three issues dedicated to this, then the strategy guide. It still did middling numbers. So, with those failures in mind, Earthbound, you know, got pushed into the background. I'm like, I'll be honest, I'm not exactly sure why they took a chance on the second game. Uh, But they did... And I'm glad they did, you know, I'm, in spite of the shitty marketing campaign, because I do feel like we have to talk about this, at least briefly, because... This game stinks. Yeah. With is, terrible, disgusting scratch-and-sniff thingies. Which, if anyone doesn't know, those were fucking huge in the 90s, so... Yeah. Especially around oh. the time this game was released. Oh, the decade kind of like, in which we live. Like, it was like the 3D vision of everything back then. It's like everything had to have a snatch, uh, scratch and sniff card. And if you watched a movie, they have a number pop up, and you were supposed to scratch that number and sniff it along with the part of the movie. I remember that. And, and then be able to yeah. tell what it was. Yeah. yeah. And, and, okay, yeah. And the literal tagline for Earthbound is, this game stinks. And it had a, a bunch of terrible scratch and sniffs 
stickers both in the ads and in the guidebook. Like, and, to, and to clarify, these are scratches and stickers that, that were supposed to be unpleasant smells, but ended up being unpleasant but identify, unidentifiable also. I, I will because the whole because there are a lot of things in this game that like in the universe would smell bad. The monster they used in a lot of the advertisements is called Master Belch, and it is a blob of sewage or something. Yeah, I have not fought him yet. You will, and like I said, the ad campaign is very '90s. It's like the anti-authoritarian, uh, you know, rudeness that you that for some reason. Uh, permeated advertising all throughout the nineties. Yeah, this was this was definitely the period where gross stuff was cool. That being said, uh, do I, job with it. I, I seriously do want to punch the guy who thought calling your game saying this game stinks with all earnesty. You know, you know, it's like I'll also note this is the nineties. We hadn't really got postmodernist irony yet. Yeah. Yeah. You know. And also, the game was expensive because every copy of it was sold with a uh, freaking with a guide. Uh, guide because they needed that to make sure people knew what they were doing. Well, well yeah, because Americans are stupid, apparently. Yeah, that fed into the 16-bit notions that Americans are stupid. They don't get RPGs. I feel like I really want to send those people a copy of Darklands and go, here, play this, motherfuckers, and you tell... Tell uh, tell me how much we can enjoy complexity, but that's a rant for another day. Yeah, but anyway, yeah. So Earthbound has, and here's the thing: Nintendo actually, it's Nintendo actually published the figures of how much they lost on this game in one Nintendo Power. I still remember this because they they mentioned they lost about a half a million dollars on Earthbound. You know, with, with all the marketing costs and everything. I wonder how... I mean, on the other hand, they re-released it recently on the Virtual Console, and I heard a thing that apparently they sold so many copies that they literally ran out of eligible codes. I've heard this, too. <laughs> that was on Club Nintendo, well, I think, not eShop. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, I'll also note, by the time Earthbound got released on the, uh, re-released on the Virtual Console... Its legacy had just grown and grown and grown. Like, yes. you know, it's another, oh, say, System Shock 2. Or, you know, insert cultish game here. You know, it's a game that wasn't incredibly popular back in the day because of, you know, uh, the reasons... Yeah, it was definitely a cult thing in, back in the day. No, it's also because it's fucking weird. You know, the entire... Yes, it is, yeah. The entire Mother series is built off of surrealism. And, you know... It, it, Mixed with a kind of... Well, I guess surrealism in perhaps a little more literal sense because there is there are parts of it that are very realistic-ish. But then it gets... I'll weird. note that, like, Mother... Uh, that, uh, that Earthbound actually cites, like, you know, the surrealist movement in some of its enemies. You know, fucking Moonside... Mm-hmm. You know, it, you know. It, Hello, Salvador Dali. Yes, you and your strange ass mustache. <laughs> yes. Honestly, it looks like a spider kind of died on his lip, on his lip, and just two legs just stuck there. It's also a strangely optimistic look at American culture. Like, 
she like Shigashio Itoi is very clearly not only a huge, huge Beatles fan. Get that one out of the way. Finish the sentence, Turday. Yesterday. <laughs> That's you, right? Anyway, yeah, it, it, it's like ju- just the Beatle, just going through the Beatle references alone in this game would have us talking about it for two hours. Yeah, but uh, is that a yellow submarine? What is a yellow submarine doing here? Yeah, but Etoy, uh, you know. I believe there's a fan of American culture. It's actually one of the more optimistic foreign looks at American culture. Hell, it's more optimistic than a lot of American stuff I could name. Mm, that's fucking saying something. Uh, uh, it's like, I mean, and yet, despite its upbeat tone, mind you, I'm talking about Earthbound, Mother 3 is remarkably more dark and depressing because yeah. that's kind of the th- you know that's kind of the themes it's dealing with, and as an aside, this is also why I want to punch anyone who asks for a mother four in the face because you kind of miss the point of mother three. Mother three is about finality. It's about dealing with the end of things. You know, there's a huge uh, portion of the end game, and in, in fact, the, you know, not getting into too many spoilers here, it's also a makes up a big amount of the backdrop of the game. You know, it's about, you know, dealing with loss and all that stuff. You know, it's definitely the most emotional of the three. To have a fourth game would severely undermine the tone of that game. Really, the only way you could do a fourth game is if you went back in time. Like, if we got the further adventures of Ness, or if we saw what Pokemon... <laughs> or you got the prequel to uh, Mother. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, this is the end. Like, Etoy was very explicit in ending the Mother series with three. And I'm of the opinion that sometimes you've got to let things end. You know, let's yeah. the franchise zombies. You know. Yeah. You know, have some respect for the franchise and let it have its natural end. Well, yeah, and Shigeru Itoi is definitely the kind of artistic person who would have an opinion about that that would be worth listening to. So, and okay, so, and let's talk about another aspect of Mother here, and that's how it can be hard to get into these days, because like I was just reading a thread on this on the Neo Gas, you know. And a lot of it comes from people who played Mother 3 first. Like, they have a hard time getting into Earthbound because Earthbound, uh, well, and especially... Earthbound is very much a uh, product of its time. And if you really want to talk about games that are a product of their time, Earthbound Zero. Earthbound Earthbound Zero is an NES RPG. That is a pretty strict limitation on things. Oh, God, yeah. It's like, you know... Okay, let me try to take a step. Damn it! Yeah. Outside of the... Uh, Why do I even have a fucking run button if I just run to an enemy every time I do it? Yeah. Outside of the uh, quirky setting, Earthbound uh, Zero is a pretty typical uh, game, 8-bit RPG. Like, I played through it. I, I honestly didn't find all that, you know, all that special. You know, Earthbound, you know, in spite of its very, very slow boil, 
Like, it's one of those games where the plot happens and then just kind of goes off in the distance for most of the game. And it has a lot of things that are kind of interesting that were fairly novel at the time, like the super rare drops for some of the for like a very select number of the best items and the it has sort of a cooking system with the weird food that you can find in places right yeah which I know I know there are other games that do that but they weren't it was not as popular then as I think it had become since then yeah and it it's also earthbound the Super NES game actually innovated in the in the uh, RPG space. Like, it's the game that, you know, it's one of the games that gave us enemies on screen. It, you know, and it still does... Oh, yeah, that too. It still does that better than so many other RPGs because it's not just enemies on the screen, but how you approach them, how they approach you, plays into the dynamics of the battle. And no, my favorite it, part about that is... What? is that when you run into weaker enemies, you just instantly kill them and don't have to battle them at all because, fuck you, I shouldn't have to fucking deal with a level 1 slime when I'm level 90. Yeah, I don't know why more... Or, or to put it in Pokemon terms, if you're you're, go, you're walking back through Mount Moon and the fucking Zubats run away from you. Yeah, it, it's like, I don't know why more games don't do this. It's like, no... Nope. A lot of games fucking do the on-screen enemies, the pre-rendered counsel, uh, encounters and everything. Yet they fucking just don't add in the bit where it's like, oh, yeah, but... A lot of them don't even let you do back attacks, which this does. Yes. That, 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 that's the extra step that Earthbound did, because, you know, just having the enemies on screen is nice, don't get me wrong. You know, that helps, of, you know, cut down on the random battles, but it's still, you know, it not only had that, it actually played that into the dynamics of battle. You know, could it be deeper? Of course it could. But, you know, it's unfortunate that nobody's lifted this system so we couldn't iterate on it and have it more refined. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and that aside, we also have things like the rolling hit points. You know, the, yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a really interesting mechanic that I sort of am curious where you could have gone with it. Uh, for people who haven't watched uh, or haven't played the game in Earthbound, your hit points are written, they look like one of those old rolling counter things, and when you take damage, uh, your hit points do not instantly go to what the new amount is. They roll down to it slowly, uh, which is interesting because, well, one of the things that it allows is for an enemy to do enough damage to kill you in one hit, but because you get another character's turn while your thing is rolling down, you can then heal that character and prevent them from dying. And I believe if you heal them, it stops them instantly. It does. And you can also, you know, you can also survive the, the death attack if your guts are a certain level. Because it, it's, it's interesting because it gives you yeah. a sort of sense of urgency, but still some control over it. Right. This is, this is what, this, this is, you know, Earthbound is like secretly really, really innovative in this space. It's just, it was so subtle that most people missed it. Most people think that the battles are, you know, vanilla Dragon Quest stuff. Right, because it's, you don't see your characters except for, I think it was it Earthbound or Earthbound or Mother 3 that added, well, like, your character appears above the text block. Right I think it was Mother 3 that did that. Yeah. So in Earthbound, it's literally just static picture of enemies with a move, with a animated background of some sort 
uh, attacks are represented by full screen visual effects usually. Right. And your party is represented by little boxes at the bottom of the screen. Right. And, and Mother 3, they added to the mix the rhythm. Like, you know, you could do attack combos in terms of the rhythm. Less innovative than what Earthbound brought to the table because we had seen rhythm, you know, rhythm in the combat beforehand. And hell, by this time, the rhythm genre was a thing. Hey, it might have been it might have been novel if Earth, Earth Mother Three had come out anything like when it was originally intended to. Right, but <laughs> well, that's kind of the thing that uh, marked the Earthbound Mother games. You know, they, they were always kind of stricken by ambition. Like uh, Earthbound, Earthbound took five years to develop. Almost didn't come out because it's actually, and once again, it, it's one of the games that's really pushing the Super NES to its limits. I know that surprises people, but that's because they're not looking in the right place. You yeah, want to know the, the, the graphical style of Earthbound is very simple. The character sprites are like almost eight bit sprites, right. but the backgrounds are huge and pretty detailed. Although they're still in a cartoony style, and some of the other sprites are pretty big too. Like some it, some point you got like the giant sandcastle guy following you around. Yeah, it's the animated backgrounds. They're they're some of the most elaborate designs seen in the Super NES age. Like they're they're very active. They're very busy. You know, contrast that to Final Fantasy, which you know had no movement on the enemy side until seven. Yeah. So that you know that's where that's where they were having problems with those backgrounds. And it wasn't until Sitoro Iwata came along and helped with the programming that this game get finished. And of course, you know, Mother Three. No, that that had an entire version scrapped because Hal Labs was was really inexperienced with 3D modeling, you know, 3D in general. Awesome. Originally, there was going to be an Earthbound 64, and that it, I mean, it eventually became yeah. Mother 3 on the Game Boy Advance, but obviously the result is very different. Yeah, it, it's like Mother 3 took about 10 years to to get created, and by, and it's like. By the time it came out, you know, it came out in 2006. This was the end days for the GBA. You know, considering that... Part of why it didn't get localized again. Part of it, but once again, you know, Nintendo got really burned on Earthbound. You know, I, I will say they have the opportunity to do it now with the Game Boy Virtual Console. Yeah, I would, not be, I would not be surprised if that... I mean, I don't expect it but I would not be surprised if they did that, even though there is a fan translation in existence now. Well, yeah, yeah. Then again, they could, you know, they, they could just be trolling us eternally because, you know, they're still doing this shit with, like, Lucas in Smash Brothers. But, uh, you know, I do hope the game does come out because, ironically, the game it was better received over here than it was in Japan. Because uh, the Japanese audience didn't like the tone that the, the third game took. They didn't like they didn't like the darker stuff, which is understandable. Because until then, Mother, while it's had its darkness, I mean, you know, the end the end the end of Earthbound gets pretty fucking dark there. You know, famously dark. You know, if you know the creation of uh, Gaius if you know where the base idea came from. But, uh, you know, the, t the overall tonality of Earthbound and Earthbound Zero is very optimistic. 
overall. And it kind of feeds into, you know, one of the overall concepts of motherhood. Really, I think Yahtzee nailed it when he uh, did a lecture on Earthbound. You know, like, mother, you know, mother is the better name for this game because, you know, that kind of what is encapsulated. Earthbound is fitting on a very, very shallow level where, yes, there are aliens and they are coming to Earth. Yep. They're not super relevant. Putting it to you this way, there's a reason why uh, Ness gets homesick. That, you know, it's an annoying mechanic, I will grant you, but it's also part of the thematic element of the game. You know, because he misses his mother, obviously. Mm-hmm. And well, wouldn't you had to go mother. out on a journey all of a sudden, had to say goodbye without little to any explanation. You kind of want to call in every once in a while and see how everything's doing. You'd be surprised how many games don't do that. Yeah. Then, I mean, sometimes it's like an option me. of your mom is a free in, but... Yeah. Yeah, Pokemon tends to do that. Bye, Mom. Off to do stuff later. <laughs> sure, yeah. come, sure, honey. Come back if you ever get tired of free health care. I'll never see that kid again. <laughs> Fucking tired. years don't pass by. Ash is still 10 years old somehow. <laughs> and, and he's still waiting to be a Pokemon master. Yeah. Uh, and um, yeah. In, in, in the first game, in Mother, the important... Well, the most important mother is not even actually the main character's mother. It's actually uh, Geek's mother. Right. Because it's her singing that you use to win the battle. And the importance of mothers in Mother 3 should be blatantly obvious to anyone who's played the first, oh, say, ten minutes of the game. <laughs> Can't really say more than that because... <laughs> spoilers, but, yeah. Mother, you know, it's not just a name. It is the concept of this series. Uh, you know, both in very overt and very subtle ways. You know, and it, it's a—it's not a concept that's explored much in, in uh, RPGs or video games in general. Uh, you know, it's one of the myriad of things that makes Earthbound Mother so endlessly fascinating. You know. You can examine so much of this game and pick out all of its little quirks, you know, should you have the patience for it. Because, like I said, people do have a hard time getting into Earthbound these days because it's an RPG from the mid-90s. You know, I'm not going to pretend that its mechanics aren't just a tad dated. You know, I do think it holds up a lot more than, say, Earth, you know, Mother 1, you know, but, you know, from a mechanics point of view, obviously the best is Mother 3. You know, it being the most recent of uh, the trilogy. All right, so we're running low on time here. So any final thoughts on the Mother series? It's a good game. Go pick it up on the Wii U. <laughs> we'll pick yeah, up the second one. Yeah. If you haven't already, because, I mean, seriously, they... Awesome. No. Yeah. Also, it's, it's a really interesting game, but give it some time. Yeah. You have to give it some time. I know I know, people don't like to hear that, but it's an RPG. You have to give it some time to get up to you. Yeah. 
and despite what certain people say, RPGs do tend to take longer to get going just because RPGs are a, are a very long form genre. I think mm-hmm. some of them can grab you with the in-medius res stuff, but mm-hmm. others, they're a slow boil. I'll grant you that, you know, Earthbound is a very slow boil, but it's, it's worth playing. Also, a bit of a warning, if you, if you are insane enough to look for a Super NES copy of the game, they are <laughs> fucking expensive. Yeah, hope you don't mind getting a second mortgage. Yeah, it's like loose copies are going for like two hundred dollars. To say nothing, yeah. To say nothing, I think they're overpriced, especially since if you want to play the game, it's right there on the Wii U Virtual Console for ten bucks. Yes, and the the entire yeah, the original pack-in player's guide is available on like Nintendo's Earthbound website, I think. Right, you can get it. Yeah, you don't need to give an arm and a leg to get this game. That that's kind of one of the good things about the digital age. Yeah, but anyway, so that's about it for the mother series, uh, and that's about it for this week. Uh, I'm sure, if we ever talk about Shigesato Itoi or anything he's been involved with again, it'll come, some more stuff will come up. But yeah, well, here's the thing: Shigashio Itoi really, you know, most of what he does is beyond the scope of the show because. He is a he's, renaissance man. Yeah, he's a very, very much what a renaissance man is. Like, he does pretty much everything. Yeah. Mother is really the only notable video game work of his. Yes, he did that bass fishing game, but honestly, I don't really want to talk about that. Hmm. I thought he did something else, but I can't remember what I thought it was. She got you Toy's number one bass fishing. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Anyway, he's an interesting guy, so he is. But like I said, yeah, he's he's not video games, so uh, that's kind of a post-show topic. Anyway, so next week we will be having Chris Borassa of Red Hook Games. Uh, they're another fresh-faced indie in the world, and they're currently working on a roguelike called Darkest Dungeon. I've seen a lot of praise heaped uh, upon this. I, you know, I saw. You know, Jim Sterling um, give a huge amount of praise towards the game. We just got the codes. You know, obviously we'll be playing it throughout the week. And I'm looking forward to it. It's available right now, but it's in early access. So I'll pre-taste that right now. Everything is, you know, it, you can buy it, but buyer beware. And that's just a blanket statement I have for early access games. You know, as far as our topic of discussion, we're still meeting that out, but we've got a few, a few ideas on the table. This is what happens when you have a few weeks of full interviews. But until next week, all I can do is wish you good gaming.